water's beautiful and the birds are working. We got a blue, it's gonna be over a thousand pounds, I'll guarantee you. Poof, here comes this monster out of the Gulf, you know. That's the meanest fighting fish I think I've ever fought. It gets in your blood, it's like uh, deer hunting or turkey hunting, it's like you live for it. Golly, I, chances we need back in them days, we're lucky to be here. This is the East Pass Podcast. I'm Rachel Staples, and today I'm sitting down again with Captain Jim Green. Thanks for sitting down and talking to me again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rachel. (laughs) We thought we'd sit down and do a little bit of an update of some things that are going on with fisheries and in the fisheries world in the Gulf of Mexico. There's, There's a few things that have been kind of some big topics lately. Um, I've even had a couple people message me asking about some of them, so we thought we'd kind of sit down and do some updates. thought we'd start with maybe talking about what's going on with this rice well petition for the speed zone in the Gulf of Mexico. If you haven't been following it, it was recently discovered in 2021, I believe it was, that rice wells are their own species. And when that was determined, they we're looking at the population size and I think it's determined right now that what there's around 50 is that correct 51 is what some some say 30 to 50 some say 51 depending on what study you look at okay and so they've been declared an endangered species and there has been a petition put forth for a a speed zone in the Gulf of Mexico it was submitted by six different organizations the Natural Resources Defense Council Healthy Gulf Center for Biological Diversity, Defenders of Wildlife, Earth Justice, and the New England Aquarium. Um, So they have submitted a petition to NOAA. Do you want to talk a little bit, Captain Jim, about what's in the petition? Yeah, well, so it's not just a speed zone. It's also a slowdown zone and a speed zone. And it's a very uh, big swath of the Gulf. It's uh, from 100 meters to 400 meters, so 300 foot to 1,200 foot more or less and it goes from south of pensacola all the way down to due west of tampa so an enormously large swath of the gulf um it all kind of caught us by surprise and and uh, we were actually reached out to by some of the private recreational organizations uh that that when they got word about it uh it mainly started over on the east coast so the right whale had a zone and they were finding the animals outside of the slowdown zone that was established over there so they started trying to move that zone and then when that attention got to it they started uh, focusing their attention to the rice whale in the gulf which as you said was a subspecies of the right whale it has numerous things other than a slowdown zone Uh, If you do not have an AIS, which is an automatic identification system, which is what uh, ships use and larger vessels are required to have on, or a VMS, you would also have to notify NOAA when you're traveling through there, when you plan on traveling through there, notify them if there's any change to that, and there would also be no transit at night through that zone. So essentially grinding to a halt, private recreational fishing offshore charter fishing offshore and uh the tournaments all the the billfish circuit that runs through the northern gulf so there was there's a lot to it and then not only were you gonna if if the if they if the petition is granted and they go into rulemaking then if you break these laws you're subject 
to the to the fines and the violations of the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act. There's a lot of heavy guns that are behind these proposed regulations if they were to go through. But we have seen uh, more or less a coalition of every person that, that has a stake in it, from private recreational anglers, groups, their groups, all the charter organizations, all of the port associations, like the Port of Tampa, Port of Pensacola, Port of Mobile, uh, the association that they're all a part of, the shipping industry, the shipping companies that own the, sh the ships that go through there. Um, it's been a very uh, heavy coalition of people that have come out with a unified voice saying that this is an overreach. Most of them have never seen a whale out there. I've seen whales out there over over the years, but none that you could identify as a rice whale. They were off in the distance, but um, everybody is very much against this and find it to be uh, flabbergasting, to be honest with you, that the petitioners did not reach out to any of the stakeholders that would this would have affected. This was a, a definitely done by a group of people that do not understand the culture of the Gulf, whether it's professional or recreational, and they have um, essentially unified us. They galvanized everybody that works or recreates in the Gulf uh, to come out against this. Uh, we wrote a letter, the DCBA, the Charter Fishermen's Association, the Alabama Charter Fishing Association, and the Florida Guides Association, we all wrote a joint letter together. And um, we talk about, you know, some, we reached out to Noah and we we're talking to him about some things that concerned us, not just the regulations and the, what we would think would be the unenforceable, the unenforceable speed zone, because it's not like they're going to have anybody out there checking speed. But um, one of our biggest concerns right off the bat was the viability of the species even recovering. So, like we talked about earlier, that 51, 30 to 50 mammals or individual animals are left out there. And even by NOAA's own, own research that they cite, it takes five generations and 100, and 100 animals to influence uh, proper genetic diversity in a population recovery, you know, without having inbreeding and stuff. So, you know, one thing that we automatically ask for was before any regulatory burdens were assessed on any stakeholder or industry that they find out if the viability of the species is even at a point where it could recover. Um, one of the big things that affected this population was the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. By the swath that they're talking about, that they've, the speed zone they've, they've talking about, Deepwater Horizon covered almost 50% of their core habitat with crude oil. It, uh, it was assessed that 17% of the rice whales died, that over 20% of the females suffered reproductive failure during that time, uh, and then about 20% suffered adverse health effects from the oil spill and the recovery effort. It later came to fruition. There was a couple of rice whales that stranded over in the western gulf on the beach, and they pointed the finger to the uh, deep water horizon. And the other thing is they don't know what, 
you know, the stock assessment says 51 animals, but they don't know the major long-term genetic effects that, of the animals that are still living that were exposed to not just the oil, but the cleanup effort. So, you know, that was another, that was one of our first concerns was viability and why we're in this position in the first place. They go on to talk about vessel strikes. It's an extremely uncommon occurrence in the Gulf. There's only been two of that's, that's been known. Only one of those caused a fatality. Uh, and the only reason they know it is because the ship carried it in on its bulb on the front of it. At When it struck the well, they carried it all the way into the port of Tampa on the bow of the boat. The, the bub- bubble that's on the bow that goes under the water, the, the pierces the wave and makes it slide through the water. The whale was on top of that pinned onto the bow. And I think that was back, I can't remember how long, it, it was a long time ago. But so they they they're coming after us about vessel strikes that's what this whole slowdown zone is all about and uh, around the world and in the gulf in history in the gulf it's always been these really large ships that do this uh we're talking about ships that have a draft of 20 to 40 feet talking about hundreds to thousands of tons of water displacement talking about really broad beams and extremely large amounts of inertia force as you can tell that it would kill a whale and carry it in on a bow you know the for hire and commercial fishing industries as well as the recreational boating community have a very large range of boats but they have nothing that qualifies as a ship most are under 120 feet most are considered small craft most don't have over eight foot draft when they're fully loaded so the risk of the of the recreational for hire and commercial fishing vessel communities are all but non-existent and uh you know when you have like we talked about before when you have the endangered species act and the marine mammal protection act and how under the jail they could put you we're talking about you know life-changing fines uh, ending careers putting people in jail for decades if you have you know something happen out there and you have a judge that's you know overzealous or a prosecutor that's overzealous about it so um some of the other things we looked into in the petition was also why were they so concerned with vessel strikes when we only had you know two and they what we found out and what others found out when they dove into it was that the life history of the rice whale is very deficient in information and a lot of the science being used to determine the to determine the relevance of the petition was coming from these little incremental studies basically so uh the one for the vessel strike was a study done and i don't remember the name of it but it's in the petition it, it listed all out and it basically for three days they tagged one whale with acoustic with an acoustic tag and for three days they followed it and then they got the diving pattern so and even the author of this uh, study uh, said interpret it with caution that more studies would need to be done to find that if this one whale's behavior is indicative of the entire gulf population of rice whales so in fisheries management that would be considered anecdotal evidence and it would not pass the peer review and it would not be eligible to be used but in this petition they're using it as if it's the golden rule and it's carte blanche 
other concerns uh, were the economic, you know, that we spoke to in the letter had to do a lot with the economics and the coastal communities and the thousands of people that are employed on charter boats, from charter boats to commercial boats, oil platforms, anything to do with the water, uh, even the tackle stores and stuff. By shutting this down and, and removing our ability to prosecute the fishery offshore, it would really... It would really hamper a lot of a lot of people's job and way of life, and uh, not to mention that you know, like our county came out, uh, Okaloosa County came out, and they were writing a letter to NOAA. Also, um, they had an emergency meeting on, I think it was July third, and they turned it around and got it in in the comment period in time to where they spoke about how we have the fads that we've built the fad system offshore well the fad system sits right in the middle of this so everybody would have to run out there slow down when they get to 300 feet and then basically 10 knot it all the way to the fads and uh we talked about also in the letter about we talked about the safety concerns and how uh, you know, we're talking about 300 to 1,200 foot of water. We're talking about a very remote, far from land piece of, of the Gulf that has year-round drastic changes in weather. Uh, there's some boats that if you were, some boats that are big enough and you get in a heavy enough sea in a following sea, you're going to go faster than 10 knots. And you have to go faster than 10 knots to remain, to have steerage. So, you know, if you get caught in a big storm out there and you're getting pushed around and you have to speed up over 10 knots, you're subjecting yourself. You're having to make a decision between the safety of your vessel and the passengers on board and yourself. Or are you open yourself up to a violation of this Endangered Species or Marine, uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act? So, you know, there's a lot of... There was a lot of things to begin with that we didn't like right on face value, but once we started diving into it, there was a lot of unknown and unanswered questions that uh, we needed answers to, you know. And in the letter, we asked them to provide that. That you know, you know, we state that it's clear that nobody reached out to us to talk to the industries to talk about it. Nobody asked our opinion. Nobody, you know, this is this was really low hanging fruit for these uh, for these advocacy groups that really didn't work to save the whale at all. All it did was keep it from having a third vessel strike in history. So we, we were very much against it, and we request that all the recommendations in the petition be rejected from consideration and that the affected industry, such as the charter industry, be brought in to talk about uh, a recovery plan that would be effective if the animal if the species was at a point where it could come back. Anyone has the right to send these petitions in and Noah has to consider them and, and read through them, give them a you know, legitimate shakedown and ask people for opinions and stuff. And do you think that submitting this, they're really thinking these are the five things, because there are five things in it. These are the five things we want. Or do you think they're thinking there's a chance that you know Noah might say, no, we're not going to do that, but kind of like a counteroffer situation. I, I'm I'm not quite sure. I mean, I I definitely can't speak for a government. What's going on in a government bureaucrat's mind? But I will say that Noah is required by law to put this petition out to comment, 
because, like you said, they they checked all the boxes of what was required. They had enough signatures. They had enough scientific involvement in it from people to sign on to this letter. So there, they had they had Noah had to by law whether they agreed with it or not. Now, as far as the ag advocacy groups go, I think they're just trying to do something. I think their heart's in the right place, but they clearly have no idea what they stepped off into like they don't realize or they might but it doesn't seem like they realize because of how nonchalant this was and how they didn't use enough scientific evidence to back up some of these assertions it doesn't seem like they did enough homework on what all happens in the gulf of mexico and what the culture and the professional culture is out there it is interesting that scientific information they were using that you were talking about over a three-day period i mean there's so many factors that could be in there is it spawning season were they passing through was you know three days cannot define the core habitat of any species or their behavior or their behavior so was there a bunch of was there a bunch of a food source there was there a scarcity of food source and the whale found some and was diving more you know what i mean like that's why even the scientist that's worth his salt put in there that this is pretty anecdotal and you know i'm paraphrasing but pretty anecdotal and there needs to be way more study and done you know so tread with caution he actually used the word caution in his paper so and i believe um so there is somewhat of a precedent of this speed zone it's a little bit it's laid out a little bit different but on the east coast they have it for the right whales um it's much smaller it is much smaller and i believe though there are three different zones aren't there and they're seasonal zones so they're not one it's it's not a you can't travel at night it's just a 10 knot or or less it's way farther offshore it's for vessels 65 feet or, or longer and they have seasonal zones i guess depending on the migratory pattern of the whales i don't and i think a lot of that has to do with water temperature probably you know when the whale is actually there the gulf is warmer there's always boat traffic. There's always warmer water. I, I think it was a very over over compared to what goes on on the East Coast or what's happening in the past and what they're trying to just move it around over there. I think it was a very overzealous grab at trying to make a difference. And I'm using air quotes there, as you can see. I thought it was interesting too that you mentioned the fads being in there because I know one of the the big things that they had to work through when they were getting the fads was the rice wells that's one reason that it took him so many years to get the fads passed was because they were making sure that they weren't going to interfere with the rice wells migration pattern so obviously it's been looked into and cleared for one thing one thing in this area um i guess we'll see where it goes like you mentioned comments closed on july 6th i believe was the last day for it um oh i also thought it was pretty cool the gulf council even put a letter in opposing it too so i mean well i think that it like i said no scientist worth their salt can stand on that pe- on the on that petition and say that this is correct there's just there's just not enough evidence and i believe you mentioned to me one time you said there was what over five thousand comments that were it was, submitted yeah when i went to put on we i, I waited because we were getting everybody co- uh, coalition on this joint letter 
And I went in, and I think I did it on July 1st. I can't remember. But at that time, there was something like 5,600-plus comments. Okay, and there were still five days left at that point. And I, w- I went scrolling through there, and I didn't see anybody, you know, I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time, but I scrolled through the list and was skimming over them, and there was, I didn't see anybody supporting the petition. It was a lot of recreational fishermen because, I mean, uh, as opposed as we are to CCA and ASA, uh, a lot of them, we, we actually worked together on a lot of this stuff or at least talked about it and showed support. And, um, you know, it was something that unified all of us. You know, it was like, hey, we all need to get out in front of this, no matter what our differences are. And um, actually had a lot of communication with them and um, before I wrote my letter and got got some of the information in my letter is from their research so we worked together to come out against this do you know what their time period is on having to respond because it's it's pretty cool when you go to read stuff in the federal register when they do like a a final rule they're required to say things like you know we received x amount of comments and then they have to kind of narrow it down within those to like make sure that they're not publishing redundant ones or ones that aren't applicable but i mean any comments i guess that are submitted to them that have any kind of basis they will publish with a response yeah so they've got a lot of work yeah yeah i would hate i would totally hate to have that job because you imagine that was your job to read the federal register every day um i i don't think uh, first off i think it'll be a while because of how many responses they're going to have to craft um i think that usually in these comment periods you can expect something back in 60 days so the couple people i've talked to and you know off the record no name kind of thing but they knew what was going to happen when they put this petition out and uh i think everybody showed up just like they thought they would (laughs) so so I, I really hope hope not. Um, President Biden came out and said something the other uh, a week or so ago about protecting these whales and you know was going to ensure. I think a lot of that had to do with his growing feud with our governor and the presidential politics that are coming out. So who knows what his um, his his motivation was behind that? If it was just political or if he actually really cares about rice whales but it'll be interesting to see you know it'll be interesting to see how this plays out i mean it's uh, i'm not trying to be nonchalant but uh my whole worry phase is over because the comment period's already in we already got our letter turned in and um i sent a copy not only to the federal register but i sent a copy to the uh, assistant administrator of national marine fisheries and a handful of other people that have the secretary of commerce ear on this type of stuff so will the next thing that comes out be a final decision or you know i haven't had to deal with a petition before of this magnitude so i would really have to go back and look but i think they'll culminate all this and then i think that the agency will um if they did they would start rulemaking and then there would also be more comment period so I guess at that point they would show their hand on whether or not they want to move forward with something. And then at that point we're going to try and go after 
and tear everything apart that they're trying to put forward. And I say that in the way of uh, minimizing, mitigating whatever it is, regulations they're trying to put in in place if if it goes that far. But uh, it's not like it's not like your comment is a vote. It's not like oh we got five thousand people that say against this because you know my one letter had four associations probably has somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 people that one letter 400 you know individual businesses that 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 let and more than that more than 400 now that i think about it but more than 400 uh small businesses were represented in that one letter so you know just because they get one comment you know it's not a vote you know it's not a tally so I think they take it seriously because they are also open to litigation. Uh, I think that they will take a very serious look because of the status of the endangered species designation. But at what point can you honestly put regulation on people for a species that is in their final decline that can't pull back out? So it'll be, we'll keep everybody in, you know, in tune on it and, and, uh, but that's that's pretty much where we're at right now on the rice well. Another thing going on right now is Amberjacks open August 1st this year. They do. <laughs> it might be surprise. the <laughs> surprise. It might be the last year for a while that that happens, but that's the plan this year. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, I think last time we talked, you you mentioned that Amberjacks were undergoing a complete restructuring of the fishery management plan. So yeah. what's going on there? Yeah, so they're starting their third attempt at rebuilding the Amberjack fishery. Uh, it is a fairly aggressive one. Uh, they want to have it rebuilt, and I say rebuilt, you know, that means that they want to have the population moving in a positive direction and uh, overfishing is not undergoing. And I believe when I looked at it, it was 27. Yes, that's when they're saying so, it will be rebuilt by. So, it, again, very a very aggressive timeline, and they've shown that in their actions by reducing the allocation by 80%. Uh, they are working on a framework action right now. Uh, that has to do with season length and uh, commercial trip limits. They recently passed Amendment 54 that reallocated the fishery and had the stock scheduled to be, as we said, rebuilt by 2027. In the past, before they did the reallocation, it was recreational 73% and commercial 27. Now it's 80 20, uh, 20% commercial, 80% recreational. Backing up just a little bit, they are using uh, MRIP and FES data, which is the old MRIP system that has all the modifications and upgrades to it. And then the FES data is the fishing effort survey, which indicates a far more larger amount of effort being applied to the fishery whatever fishery fes data is being applied to across the board it shows way more effort shows way more discards um a little note on that in my personal opinion i think mrip is a little too conservative and i think fes is a little too liberal you know i think probably reality is somewhere in the middle so if they you know, they're, right now they want FES data to be the gold standard, but they have to run it alongside MRIP, and I'm hoping that we, it mellows out some because 
some of the numbers are kind of scary. But nonetheless, they've taken this aggressive approach with uh, Amberjack. Um, right now, uh, the in the June meeting, in the June meeting, the Gulf Council made the preferred alternative to be a September one opening and an October thirty first closure. So two months. And that falls in the fall. And to be honest with you, that's probably what's best for the entire Gulf. Um, as you know, there's been a lot of management changes with it. We've changed the start date of the allocation to August 1st. And the reason why it does that is because they, uh, in the Western Gulf, their weather is so bad in the spring. Ten years ago, the Eastern Gulf was catching all the allocation before the fall season started. So that's why our allocation renews August 1st. Now, they're opening in September, and they're opening it for September and October in this rebuilding because August has so much effort, just like this year. So it's going to start open, it's going to open on August 1st, and it's going to close on August 23rd. Fourth, I 20, believe. Well, 24th at 12.01 a.m. So last day you can catch it would be August 23rd. So. In comparison, that shows you how much effort there is in August compared to September and October. What takes three weeks to catch the allocation in August projected takes two months in, in September and October. A lot of that has to do with you know football season, hunting, other other things taking people, schools back in session. There's other things that draw people away from just fishing, so the catch levels are down. You know, that's it's a good thing i think for the gulf because all of us kind of agree that september october is a good time it helps us with our fishing rodeo uh the guys in panama city are happy with it usually because they have something to catch a big fish to catch in the fall and the western gulf on the other side of the river uh in alabama they're all they need something we all need something to catch in the fall compared to the snapper in the summer and groupers are great but you can't rely on a grouper to bite every day so this is a um, a fishery that you can prosecute and 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 take customers to every day compared to a grouper so so this year um going in i think we were all kind of expecting it to open september 1st because that's kind of been the you know the word on the street and then i guess what the the ruling wasn't done in time and that's why we're getting an august 1st opening this year yeah so um Basically, it was a little it was a little lapse in time. There was a emergency rule last year that moved the start date to September first through October, and that went well for us because we were able to have a two month season instead of this short three week season that we're facing this year. Uh, but somewhere along the line, the emergency rule the emergency rule ran out, and it did not become evident that the document was going to get done in time to to be eligible for this year so once they realized that it was like hey this is you know we're going to definitely uh miss the deadline for this year so it is going to open august 1st and they kind of focused on the gag grouper to get it done because it was closed perpetually until september do you think that an aggressive approach really needed to be taken for Amberjacks, though? Because if, if you look back kind of like through the history management of them, 
I guess the first stock assessment was really done in like 2000. Um, when they when they first did actually the refish FMP, they didn't even include include amberjacks because they were like a bycatch. So when they first started doing stock assessments, seems like it became quick or evident quickly that they were being overfished and they'd been overfished for a while. Um, and then it seems like every few years, you know, they either up the size limit, you know, lower the quota, whatever. Like it was, I guess the first year that they did a size limit was 1990 and it was 28 inches for recreational. Yeah. It was 36 inches for commercial, which it has been since then. It is still 36 inches, but it was 28 inches for recreational three fish per person. And it stayed at 28 inches until I think 2008. Yeah. At which point they upped it to 30 inches. Yep. Um, and then it stayed at 30 inches until 2015, 16, Fifth, something. Yes, and then there. they upped it to 34, what, which is what it is now. But speaking to you in the past, you have mentioned there's a, a lot of issues with these old size limits. Well, so to kind of summarize it, everything that they've done is not enough so a 35 inch amberjack a female 35 inch amberjack has a 50 percent chance of being sexually mature so to put that in perspective the regulation right now a legal amberjack at 34 inches definitely has less than 50 percent chance of being able to replenish itself no other fishery do we have such a disparity that i'm aware of in maturity and harvestable size so triggerfish sexually mature at six inches red snapper sexually mature between 12 and 14 inches it's a reoccurring thing that we allow that fish the opportunity to replenish itself to at least have one spawning cycle before we remove it from the the water and the biomass so with that said 35 inch amberjack female amberjack has less than a 50 percent or a 50 percent chance of being sexually mature 28 30 34 it's not enough and for my entire lifetime because you know before there was even limits to where we are now we're still killing amberjacks that don't have a 50 50 chance of being mature and replenish itself it doesn't make sense it's like going out into the deer woods and shooting nothing but fawns. Just let it, you know, let it rip, tater chip. You know, we're going to take out all these juvenile fish, and we wonder why we're on our third rebuilding plan. We're wondering, to me, I've always wondered why the recreational fish wasn't 36 inches like the commercial guys. And to be quite honest with you, you know, the, 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 the greater amberjack is it's not deficient in information but fish like gag grouper and red snapper have overshadowed this fish for decades so they've never devoted the amount of time to this to the amberjack like they did these other fisheries and i would just say it's lacking it's not deficient there's you know there's enough to make these recommendations but what i don't understand is why we're not pushing for a 38 or 40 inch fish like it that that is a large fish that's a 30 probably 35 pound amberjack that's that's a big fish but if we're talking about having to rebuild them and reduce quotas by alloc or allocations by 80 percent and we're taking these steps why aren't we taking a drastic one you know i mean 
it, first time I get it. Second time, oh, wait a minute. You know, we're figuring it out. Third time, it's like, come on. You know, just because it doesn't matter if they have if the season's a month or ten months. If we're killing juvenile fish, there's no way that we're ever going to catch back up. There's too many lumberjacks and not enough trees. And to me personally, uh, Destin's been pretty in the last five to six seven years we've been pretty uh pretty conservative we go to these meetings and some of the fishermen other charter fishermen from like alabama thought we were crazy when we were talking about a fractional bag limit and what that was was a at that time we were trying to we were recommending the council a 36 inch fish with a one fish per two people so if you had three people you got two fish if you had four people you got two fish five people three fish and it seems crazy but at the same time what seems even crazier is three attempts to rebuild a fishery you know so i think that it's we we don't take huge steps when we're making changes uh to management because we have to quantify that data from the past but if all of our data is showing that we are not making a big enough step forward to save this fishery or to to at least plateau it then i think at that point you have to make a big change and you know that go kind of goes into uh everybody heard about the great red snapper count last year or the year before when it came out when it was published they're actually doing the great amberjack count and what that is is that they congress and NOAA recognized that there was a lack of biological and ecological information on the jack so they each appropriated $5 million uh, to Sea Grant uh, for an amberjack study, which is basically the same path they took with uh, the Great Red Snapper count. So uh, with that, there's like 18 scientists, 13 institutions doing this great uh, greater amberjack count. And we're talking about Auburn University, War Eagle, War Eagle. Texas A&M University, LSU, University of South Florida, are all involved with the Sea Grant program, uh, for, uh, with the Sea Grant, which also has the Sea Grant has from Texas all the way around to Georgia and South Carolina. All the states are involved, so uh, there's a lot going on with trying to get more information on the amberjack. Um, but I, I think that it really starts with the easy you know low-hanging fruit that we need to be harvesting fish that are sexually mature if we really want to make a difference um i know cedar which is the southeast data assessment review that's where all of our stock assessments come from i know that they have requested a benchmark of stock assessment in 2026 which will probably you know take two years but it probably will coincide with the results of the great amberjack count coming out and then doing a a big benchmark which you know there's there's two kinds there's a operational assessment and then there's like a benchmark assessment so those are the two different stock assessments they do and they want to do a big one right after they get the information from the great uh, amberjack count so they're going to use that information from the uh, amberjack count to inject that into a benchmark stock assessment so Hopefully we get more than what we did from the Great Red Snapper Count. So a lot of people were let down by the Great Red Snapper Count because it did show 
a high abundance of red snapper that weren't being accounted for. The problem was is that it was a bunch of two and three year old red snappers. You know, it, it was not a bunch of eight and ten year old red snappers. If there was a bunch of eight and ten year old red snappers that it showed scientifically showed was in the biomass out in the Gulf, everybody would have got a huge allocation bump. But an eight ten year old snapper makes somewhere between you know fifty to seventy thousand eggs, where a two or three two or three year old red snapper makes 5,000 eggs and they're not quality you know because they they just they have not developed mature enough to create the egg that you know the best egg possible like an eight and ten pounder has so there's a lot of stuff going on with with amberjack i'm glad the council has taken the steps it has to provide the most angling opportunities for our angler but i think that you know they're missing the bus on not raising the size limit up and making sure that every fish we take out of the water are mature. I mean, has it, has it not been discussed? Because it is interesting, like you mentioned, like every other species, it seems like with the recreation of commercial size limits, if they're not the same, the commercial size limit is lower than the recreational size limit because they want to decrease the chance of discard mortality. So why is this one species even as far back as 1990 when they made the size limit such a huge difference in the recreational and the commercial i'll have to just <laughs> i mean like i don't know and it's kind of like red snapper like red snapper's peak spawn is in the summertime and we our seasons in the summertime but their justification of that is that the snapper spawns year-round it's just this is the peak and i can only think that even though a 35 inch jack has a 50 percent chance of being mature that when they when they really started doing that before we went to a 34 and got closer to that number they were in the assumption that there was just that much abundance and that little effort but we've you know it's clear we've come to a point where the abundance is less and the effort is more and we need to make those adjustments but it was a pretty big jump for them to go to a 34 inch fish you know and i think uh hopefully they know something i don't know uh i know that they're still learning about this fish i know they probably are putting the brakes on it until and they you know they they got serious they got serious and dropped our allocation by 80 percent and they put the brakes on this thing until we get the more information from the amberjack count but I know that fish were tagged. Uh, one thing that has never happened before that has in the last couple of years is fish. Amberjacks were getting tagged off of the peninsula of Florida over off Tampa and Clearwater. And they were recovering those tags in the Caribbean. So that was the first scientific evidence that the Gulf stock of fish intermingles with the Caribbean stock of fish. Because there's also a South, you know, it's the South Atlantic. Was that a phenomenon? Was it, uh, you know, a once in a once, you know, one out of a billion kind of shot that that happened? That fish just get in the wrong side of the loop current and shoot the wrong way. I mean, you know, they don't understand that. Which hopefully, the great amberjack count will shed a lot of light on this because they're not only looking at the gold stock, but they're doing this count in the South Atlantic stock and their stock is not overfished and not over going overfishing but they don't have 
their reef fish fishery is not like ours. You know, that's why their red snapper season is so short. They just don't have the amount of effort being applied over there compared to over here. Like, it's it's tremendous difference. It's not like I'm not diminishing them. I'm just saying that there's just less habitat, so there's less fishermen. Most fishermen on the East Coast are pelagic fishermen. You know, it's a it's the diversity of pelagic and reef fishermen in the Gulf compared to the South Atlantic is 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 it's starkly different. Another thing that's kind of evolved over time with amberjacks is the commercial trip limits. Um, so I think they first in 2008 is when they started doing sector allocations for them when they did the 73% recreational and 23% commercial, which is now changed to 80, 20. And then in 2012, they set a 2000 pound commercial trip limit for amberjacks, which meant that, you know, on one trip, the most you can bring back is 2000 pounds. Um, and then there's a 2015 framework action that decreased the commercial trip limit from 2,000 pounds to 1,500 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think they've decreased it to 1,000 pounds uh, commercial trip limit. And then once 75% of the allocation is caught, it decreases to 250 pounds just so they can get a little better handle on it as it's being filled. It's supposed to bring stability by doing that, by reducing it down to 250 pounds that way the the fishery stays open and there's you know some stability in the commercial sector in the market but apparently we're having an issue because we're not a lot that's not happening it's the fishery is shutting down it shut down june 18th in june this year so uh one of the things in this framework action that uh that's I believe slated to take final action at this August council meeting. The council removed options that would set uh, commercial trim li- trip limits and pounds and um, added an alternative that would consider setting the commercial trip limit in a number of fish and eight to be exact. So basically making it a bycatch fishery and uh, which I mean a reduction in 80% allocation does anyway but they're doing that uh hoping that 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 greater reduction of just having eight fish it's way easier to keep track of and um, then they'll be able to use the poundage off what's weighed in to keep track of where the allocation is but it's way easier to keep track of eight fish than do i have a thousand pounds do i have 1200 do i have 900 so um the council is also, and it probably is going to come out when the agenda does. The agenda for the August council meeting doesn't come out till July 28th, but they're talking about doing a video to solicit public comment on the proposed changes uh, because they plan on taking final action at this at this one at this next August council meeting. So, do you think they'll IFQ Amberjack? I don't think this council would ever consider doing that. This council is so heavy right now, uh, private recreational. And we did have uh, two of the three people that we were trying to push through in the charter industry did make it on the council. And this August will be their, they'll be seated. They'll be seated uh, at this, this will be their first meeting. So it'll be interested to see how that always takes place you know sometimes there's been council members put on you thought you were good and you're like oh this guy's 
this person is way off than what I thought they were. And sometimes you've been scared of council members being placed on the council and they're actually pretty rational and business minded. So, you know, you never know what you get till you put them on there. So you said there's um, two of the ones that you're pushing for made it in are there any other new seats like what's the total number of new seats at the august meeting Do you uh it, it was three and three. so two of the three and uh, one of them he uh, one of the gentlemen is a uh charter slash commercial fisherman and uh he's very accomplished he's won a lot of uh tournaments king mackerel tournaments he's from down uh, south of tampa and uh the other one is a scientist that we actually backed uh from texas she works at the heart institute in texas a and m she's kind of on the fence as far as what we were considering because of who she worked for because uh the heart institute gets a lot of funding from cca and some of the other organizations but her husband owns federal reef permits and I believe is retiring soon from the job he has and is going to start charter fishing. So uh, we met with her, a few guys met with her and, and uh, gave, him the stamp of, gave her the stamp of approval. So we backed her and she actually got on in Texas. So uh, it'll be the first time we get to meet her. I get to meet her. So, but uh, from what I understand, she's uh, pretty level-headed and I, mean, I hope she doesn't cut her husband's throat <laughs> you know? so so there's all you know and what are the dates for the meeting in august uh so the meeting is going to be august 14th through the 17th and there and it's in austin texas which i know sounds kind of weird but the gulf council tries to do a meeting every once in a while off the coast to reach and it's usually like austin it's in a big uh, metropolitan area to try and give the opportunity for recreational anglers that don't live on the coast to attend these meetings. Uh, sometimes they're in San Antonio. I've seen them in San Antonio and Austin before. Uh, most of the ones over in the Eastern Gulf are on the coast from New Orleans around this way. But I do know that they try to do that a lot. And uh, the meetings, the meetings are picked by the chairman and the chairman that uh just had his last meeting in june he uh he's from texas so well that's cool that they mix it up and they have it at different locations to you know yeah yeah different people can be a part of it yeah no i definitely don't want to stifle anybody's chance to go to these meetings there you learn a lot another topic that is current would be red groupers uh they close july 21st at 12:01 a.m at 12:01 a.m so don't catch them on july 21st july 20th <laughs> everybody asks about that too that why they do that and it, like that is the legal definition because they can't say you can only catch them through july, july 20th till dinner time you know what i mean like it has to encompass the whole date and the when the date chain rolls over to july 21st it's at 12:01 a.m so it's a le- it's a legality thing just to clear that up so everybody note that because i know it is confusing when you look at the dates that a season is open if it says till 1201 a.m that means that day it's closed yes yeah (laughs) okay so they're going to be closed this year from july 21st through the end of the year um there was actually a lot of changes made last year with amendment 53 i believe to the red groupers um it was last june was the the final rule for it they did some 
some reallocations with those between commercial and recreational, correct? Yeah, so that was Amendment 53, and that was the first introduction to FES data, where they incorporated FES data into a amendment, and they basically took uh, the 76 commercial, 24 recreational, and went to 60% commercial, more or less, and 40% recreational which was a huge chop. Uh, the commercial fishermen were not happy. They'd been fishing in an IFQ and were accountable and felt like that it was a fish grab. Then we went into it a little further because, you know, charter boats are recreational. So by having that allocation moved over to us, we were getting more fish, you know. And if we back up just a little bit, first off, the, the allocation was reduced greatly. You know, a big chop of 10 million pounds was taken out because of where they were. The reallocation of the fish happened at the same time, so it was like a double whammy to the commercial guys. As for higher fishermen, you know, we work with the commercial guys, and uh, it's that whole we make a living on the water together type thing. And uh, we started diving into what this FES data was because this was the first Reef, Fish, Reef Fish Amendment 53, the Red Grouper, was the first amendment they put this FES data in. And we were trying to figure out what it all meant. And what we realized is that it showed a very high amount of effort. There were, showed a lot more private recreational fishermen fishing than it did in MREP, the old data system. And... Then we started looking at it further, and then it started showing not only was there more people fishing, but there was an enormous amount of dead discards. So the FES data added 400% more discard mortality to the fishery. Detrimental in number. I mean... That's huge. Huge. So it was adding 400% more dead discards and we were like how in the world are you going to allocate more fish to a sector which we were a part of if you're thinking about the fish how are you going to allocate more fish to a sector that is unsustainably harvesting these fish they're or know, according to the data according to the data well according to what we had to live with you know mm -hmm. because whether you like the data or not you still have to live with it so you know the way we felt about it we were in up in arms and we were actually giving testimony against ourselves to get more fish because we knew it wasn't our handling practices that we were worried about it was the the novice private recreational angler and how what this data was doing to it injecting more allocation into their side of 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 the of the fishery our side of the fishery and uh we actually the charter fishermen's association the destin charter boat association with various others all uh came together and we filed an amicus brief the the commercial fishermen filed a lawsuit against the national marine fishery service and the charter fishermen 
filed an amicus brief, which is a friends of the court. We're basically signing on, saying that we are an affected group, and this is why. And our amicus brief was 14 pages, and it explained thoroughly that we were opposed to getting more fish in the recreational sector because of this disparity with the dead discards. You know, it was a short term. It'd be a short term gain of having more fish, but eventually we're going to end back up like we are with Amberjack. We're going to end up in a rebuilding plan if we're not sustainably harvesting these fish and and having the proper fish handling practices that can change that number. So, uh, red grouper is a very hot button issue down in South Florida. Um, my friend Dylan Hubbard, he has Hubbard's Marina and John's Pass, and that, I believe he's a fifth or sixth generation fisherman down there. And what they're seeing is an abundance of red grouper. Of course, this what Amendment 53 was set on was data from 2019 pre pandemic. So there was nobody out there for a couple years collecting data. So that was the terminal year on the out on the on the stock assessment that was being used to create this this problem and um, so you had in 2018 you had a huge red tide event that killed a lot of red groupers a lot of a lot of fish different species took a brunt of the hit of that and then a year or two later you had a stock assessment in 2019 or that was the last year of data used right after a fresh red tide and now we're in 2003 and we have these regulations being put on us from this data that's four years old now uh and they're seeing an abundance of of juvenile red groupers and granted like we talked about earlier with the red snapper they are juveniles but there's an abundance of them and they're seeing more and more and they're starting to enter the fishery so um they're they, they they're super hopeful because I believe uh, our next red grouper uh, stock assessment is going to start in January of 2024, and it's a it's an operational uh, stock assessment. So, what an operational is is it takes the benchmark information and it updates it basically. So uh, they're excited because even though we're having this closure and they're and they're upset about that, they're excited that the stock the stock assessment starts in January. So. In a year from now, in August of 2024, we'll have the results back from the operational assessment of the fishery, and that will allow us to uh, that allow them to make new catch advice. So it may raise the allocation. You know how much depends on how certain their anecdotal evidence of what they're seeing down there is. So there's a chance they could, in theory get back all the the fish that they've lost for all these years i mean that would be a giant bump obviously but that would be that would be that would be pie in the sky i think i think but if they but i mean even if they got back 20 or 30 percent of it it would be huge now what's not going to happen is that lawsuit that we filed that we helped uh friends of the court with uh we ended up losing that lawsuit because fes data is the best available science by their definition and that was the big argument. We were arguing that it broke some national standards, that the discards that it would add would break national standards, you know, and that it was, goes against the intent of Magnuson, which is to preserve the fish. Um, but 
that judge did not see it that way for whatever reason it, it would be 20 percent would be pretty good i think i did see that in like in 2000 red grouper were determined to be overfish and being undergoing over overfishing um and then they put a 10-year rebuilding plan in place and by 2007 they determined it was rebuilt mm-hmm. which i mean that's a quick turnaround so hopefully it'll be you know the same kind of time frame with this yeah yeah and i uh you know it, it turned around really quick and i think a lot of that has to do with having good recruitments you know uh fishery fish fishery recruitments and when i say recruitments i mean how many babies they make each year you know it, it ebbs and flows sometimes you have a couple of years where there's a lot of high recruitment and then in a couple of years you'll see a lot of low and you'll see that when you're out there fishing especially charter fishermen because they'll see like a lot of 10 and 12 inch snappers but not a lot of eight you know what i mean or they'll see a lot of eight and 10 inch snappers and not in that 12 to 14 inch range so you can kind of as a charter fisherman you see the abundance of of a size of fit like oh there's a lot of rats were they big rats yeah they were kind of big no they were tiny you know tiny rat you know so you can kind of gauge and what in your area what what kind of recruitment happened you know over a time period but um i think in 07 there was just a lot of good recruitment and they definitely didn't have the immense issue that they've been having the last five six years with red tide events down there so yeah, from what I've read, it doesn't look like even when when all this happened with the Red Grouper in Amendment Fifty Three, I don't think that they were blaming fishermen for the decrease in stock size for Red Grouper. No. It sounds like they were saying it wasn't overfish, it wasn't undergoing overfishing, but you know there was the red tide event, and you know there could be a lot of factors that they were attributing it to. Yeah, and you know you hear people around here say, "Oh, it's red tide." You know, it, it's not. When I was a kid there was a red tide event here and it was like we would catch bait in the morning at the pass and then we'd pull out our tubs and we would use our decos and we would fill up all of our tubs with salt water and then we'd start going out and then we'd get like four to six miles from land and you could start to feel your eyes start watering and you see fish floating in the water and a lot of red groupers red groupers are very susceptible to the red tide and they don't move fast like other fish do triggers and jacks and stuff like that so you saw a lot of groupers uh gag and red groupers floating but what would happen is we would get out to the line where with the red tide was out there and we would shut our saltwater pump off our live well pumps off and we would sit there and we'd wrap our we'd wrap a t-shirt around our face because our eyes are watering snot just coming out of your nose and we'd be back there with a five gallon bucket dipping water out of a tub and pouring it into the live well and then once you got to that 10 or 12 mile mark and you got out of the red tide we'd turn the pump back on but everybody's catching bait and they'd run out there and all the bait died before they could get through it so we started filling up tubs on the back deck and running through it with our face covered as much as possible and dumping fresh water into the live well to where all of our baits didn't die that we spent an hour catching. So big difference between pollution and red tide event. Between a bacteria, you know, explosion and bacteria, unsafe water to get in, and red tide. Red It hangs around a lot longer. It's an algae bloom. It kills fish from top to bottom in the water column. So, you know, they did not blame the fishermen or their practices. 
it was just like an act of God. Yeah, and with their red grouper fishery over there, it's obviously much more active. They have a whole lot more than what we're catching over here. So yes. it was a big deal. Um, we're actually kind of at the end of the range. Like Panama City, Destin, Pensacola, we're, there's, you don't catch a lot of red grouper on, past us. It is cool, though, that, you know, even with it not affecting it, us as much, that y'all were supporting such, you know, a group that it was affecting, and everybody can band together even on something that doesn't totally affect them. Even, like, you know, with the rice well situation here, that's a huge deal to us where it where it is, but, you know, people all along the Gulf, Gulf Coast that this may not even affect their day-to-day life still had input yeah. on the situation. Yeah, all of our guys from Texas supported us. And everybody, even south of, I mean, it's basically Tampa to Pensacola. This who's affected, and everybody came out like, no, 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 this, <laughs> this, this can't be. Like, you can't do this. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's one thing that we try to always preach to, and preach, I say, but one thing that we try to always assert in our thought process when we're working through issues and regulations is it's bigger than one port it's you gotta you gotta sometimes you gotta go above 30,000 feet and get to 60,000 and really this gulf is managed as a whole and you know what happens to you in one area uh, might be happening to somebody else in a different area the next year or the next week so we do a pretty good job of banding together and not just thinking about what's best for our port uh, you can always be your best advocate we're always our own best advocate but we do try it when when there's when you're able to make concessions you make concessions because you never know when you're going to need the those people over there south of us or to the west of us to help us with an issue here so it sets precedence too so it seems like a lot of times with these these amendments that are made that we're going along we'll start noticing that maybe a fishery is in decline it seems like the voices of commercial and charter and even sometimes recreational fishermen will start speaking up about let's say amberjack for years it's probably been said you know we got to do something about amberjacks they're they're decreasing it seems like it gets to a point to where it's pretty bad and then an emergency rule is put in place while they come up with the amendment to fix the plan can an emergency rule be done at any time um there has to be a reason. The regional administrator just can't come out and apply an emergency rule. There, There's different things that have to be met. One thing could be overfishing, you know, as far as like it might be multiple years that the quotas overran. But emergency rule is usually coined in with a uh, stock assessment that comes out and it shows a great reduction in allocation or it shows a reduction in, a, in biomass or some metric that triggers having to create a new amendment and a new management plan for that fish so you can't just willy-nilly because you don't like this there there's some certain metrics that have to be met for them to apply an emergency rule a lot of things when you start seeing trends you try to handle them with what we would call a framework action which is something that can happen a lot quicker than an amendment where they can go into an amendment and they can change or alter something that could drastically improve the management of the fishery 
uh, and they you'll see that like you'll see them try and go in there and they'll try to fix what they have before they turn it to the wind and have to start fresh so uh, emergency rule really has to be something detrimental to the fishery like could harm it to the point where it doesn't return or harm it to a point where it would trigger a rebuilding plan or something like that or drastically affect an existing rebuilding plan like if they come out with this amberjack thing and then all of a sudden our catches go way down and uh, they find discrepancy and we're only catching little ones and we're not catching big ones anymore or whatever that may be that triggers them to you know it has to be something drastic to to affect what's going on it can't just be because they feel like it because i tried to get them to do another emer- i was like just write another emergency rule like we don't need jacks opening august 1st we need them in september make it through october and he goes man i just can't do it. I, like i'm by law i can't do that i assumed that there were i mean when you hear emergency rule that sounds like something you can just throw down at any time to just do but i assumed there had to be you know parameters for it he could throw it down but he would get sued if somebody didn't agree with his emergency rule like there it there's a he could do it but it wouldn't pass the money he'd end up getting fired you know what i mean right. like, like he throws up an emergency rule the regional administrator and then it goes the first thing it does is goes to maryland to know ahead to national Marine fisheries headquarters for them to verify it before it hits the federal register you know when they made the emergency rule on amberjack they wrote it this is what's going on we have a great reduction if we open in august we're going to reduce this it's going to adversely affect the fishery uh you know and it basically the emergency rule gives them time to create the document and get it in place and that's not what happened so the regional administrator writes one but NOAA and national marine fisheries the administ the the head honchos have to approve it before it hits the federal register and becomes implemented as an emergency rule and when these these amendments are made and they maybe they start like a new rebuilding plan um for instance for amberjacks they're saying they'll be rebuilt by 2027 in that amendment do they have set days for like or set years i guess i should say where they're going to redo the stock assessments so cedar the southeast uh, data assessment review has a schedule and um, so their teams, you know, CDAR has the South Atlantic, they have the Caribbean, uh, and in the Gulf, and uh, so they will finalize their schedule. Like right now, the 2023 through 2024 is finalized. They know what they're going to do, and then uh, in 25 in 2025 they have what they are accepting. Like they, and then in 26, 27, 28 they have proposed. So basically, what they're doing is dependent on the fishery and how important it is. You, like on the schedule, you see a lot more red snapper stuff than you do anything else. Uh, but it will coincide with the generational thing. Or it could be something like uh, like they're going to redo the trigger fish stock assessment January of 2024, starting this year, and they're doing a benchmark, basically, or, or a research track where they do a very comprehensive, uh, long assessment, a time-consuming assessment. And then 
starting in January of 2026, they'll do an operational. So they'll do a big assessment, and then right after that, because they're doing an assessment over a two-year period, they're using data. By the time they get done with it, the data is two years old. So then, as soon as they get done with that, they'll pop in an operational to just catch that up, if that makes sense. And an operational assessment takes like four to six months to do. And they take basically new catch, the newest of catch data and they apply it to what they just did. Um, Amberjacks, you know, like they, they did this one that just came out in 2020, at the end of 2022. And the next Amberjack won it until January of 25. So I hate to say it, but I like to think that it's biologically driven but a lot of it has to do with politics and a lot of it has to do with how in trouble is this fishery is it recovering are they you know they, they it's it's a scale it's a balance and they're trying to find that balance because we're limited we're, we're the only uh, region that has one science center for three different regions for the South Atlantic Caribbean and the and the uh, Gulf of Mexico, we only have the Southeast Science Center, one science center that does all of, all three of them. Where New England and the Pacific and Alaska, they all have their own science center for their region. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's that much. I mean, what's the area difference? But I mean, that's a huge area. Well, it's a lot, and it's not just area. It's uh, the diversity of the fishery too. I mean. You know, in Alaska, you got salmon, and you got halibut, pollock. You know, you only have, like, a few fisheries where down here, we got shrimp, we got pelagics, we got king mackerel, you know, because pelagics are cobia, and, you know, and then we got reef fish and tuna. You know, like, we have so many, and I've even tried to butter up politicians you know when that bp money was coming around like hey don't you want your name on a science center <laughs> like well it sounds like there could definitely be a lot of use for one um so what you're saying is there's i mean let's say that tomorrow we went out there and we were like i'm just gonna white snapper are extremely endangered we need to red porgy <laughs> red porgy red porgies um, we we got to do something about it. We really got to do something about it. We start sounding off. Um, Two years, right? They they could be like, well, I'm sorry, we can't do a stock assessment because we're full. It's going to be yeah, you know, two three years before we can fit it into the schedule. Yeah, well, I mean, they can make adjustments sometimes too, but uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, like in our first podcast, we talked about how you go to these council meetings and you say the same thing over and over and they're like, Hey, you've been talking about that for a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it has to be something pretty detrimental, pretty biblical in in the sense of the word to alter that schedule, you know, and that's the one thing, unless it's something like an oil spill or like a red tide event that would trigger it. That would make them people jump that would make the council reprioritize things because cedar cedar is managed by the gulf council so the council sets the tone if they come in there and say whoa red grouper is just falling off a cliff y'all gotta stop whatever you know as soon as you get done with that prioritize red grouper 
it'd be unprecedented, you know, but it they definitely could do that because CDAR is uh, managed by the council and, and they can pull those strings, but you tend not to upset that apple cart. You know what I mean? Like it's, like I said, these things are scheduled years in advance and they're trying to hit, you know, and, and they're trying to hit it right. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to be deficient, but as you can see there's a lot of two and three year things and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we only have one science center and that science center is producing data as much as it can but it only has so much bandwidth there's only so many people in there so you know trigger fish right now we're you know catch advice is being used on it we just got we just got a new one with trigger fish a year ago so catch and that data was from 2019 you know what i mean so it's like even though we're getting this catch advice that doesn't necessarily mean it's reflective of what's going on in the last 700 days out in the gulf of mexico sounds like the people at the science center are very busy <laughs> yes well that's all really interesting and helpful is there anything else I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of things coming up. Um, I do want to talk about gag grouper soon. We'll wait to get into that. Um, maybe you can come back from the Gulf Council meeting with a lot of new information for us and everything. But can you think of anything else that right now we need to talk about? Not right now. I think that pretty much covers it. Triggerfish open back up August 1st, and they will run that season will run until they feel it's met last year i believe it was the third week of october or somewhere around there so um i do know that our catch levels are down on trigger fish so and that's because of the huge size limit on them so there's a lot of 14 14 half inch trigger fish so i think we're getting to a point now after this next stock assessment that we'll be able to go to them and try and get them to lower the size limit a little bit so we can harvest more fish but i'm kind of scared to do that until we get more fish because then we could catch the quota up too quick so it's you know finding that balance so anyway august 1st trigger fish open august 1st amberjacks open and uh jacks close on the 23rd of august and then uh Red snappers close real close to the end of Amberjacks too. Twenty fourth, I believe it's the last so, day. So, so it'll be uh, it'll probably be a little tough for charter boats there in between uh, the end of uh, that last week of August. It'll be back Domingo fishing for a little while until uh, Amberjacks or until I'm sorry, Gag Groupers open up. So they open up uh, September first and go through. I think they're proposing instead of. November 11th. Yeah, no, it's it's in November instead of December. Yeah, it was 31st. like uh, there there was some issue whenever they were discussing that on the catch data, and um, because of the big reduction in allocation of eighty percent, it was like the alternative the staff gave them was September first through like November fifteenth or something like that, and they cut another week off of it just to make sure that the because because the, fishery data operates in a two-month uh wave and two-month intervals when you start getting a season that short you can't uh you can't really close it mid-stride because your data is not even turned in yet so 
um, whenever whenever you have they, they aired on the side of caution basically they took about five days a handful of days off just to ensure that overfishing doesn't occur in the gag fishery so i want to say it's like november 11th or something like that yeah they requested closing on november 10th instead of december 31st i thought it was interesting too that you know the past few years it's opened june 1st but they said this year that if they did open it on june 1st we'd get like a 16 day season yeah so i'm good with the fall season <laughs> yes uh, that's that's pretty tough that that would be pretty that's like the samber the samberjack thing it's you're talking about such a small amount of allocation that creating the most access as possible is is the best thing you can do with it and uh you know what happens when they open it for you know the federal government is not that nimble what if they open it up you know in june and we have a low pressure move through or a tropical storm or something and then then what like get nothing you don't get nothing or you know it's going to take it's going to take four months they're going to have to get that data in they're going to have to quantify that data they're going to have to peer review that data then they can use that data oh yeah y'all only caught a third of your you know then they can reopen it well you've already it's so far out that you've already you've already marketed your small season in the summertime so you know it's tough Mm -hmm. it's tough to do sometimes well, thank you for sitting down and talking to me today. Um, I appreciate it, and I'm anxious to to see what happens at the next Gulf Council meeting. Yeah, and I appreciate it, Rachel. I, I really appreciate not only uh, the stories that you've gotten these legends to tell on, on your podcast, and I can't wait for the others to come, but I really appreciate you giving us a platform and the opportunity to reach out to our guys here locally and around the Gulf and anybody else that wants to listen for that matter about some of the struggles and the things that we go through trying to help regulate our own our own destiny and it's uh it's it can be difficult at times there's a lot of hard decisions you got to make like you know i could do this and it'll be good for a year or two but then i'm gonna spend the next seven or eight or ten years trying to fix what i that flash in the pan that that you know lasted a year or two so it's it's difficult and i really really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast with you well i appreciate you doing it and also all the time that you you put into everything i know that it's not you put a lot of time and effort into not only keeping up to date with things but also being involved with everything you know for instance the letter that you know y'all put together for the rice wells that obviously there was some research time involved in that and i know a lot of thought and effort is put into all of it so thank you for advocating for for all of us awesome all right we'll catch you next time it was some fun back in them days i tell you you always remember the beautiful light southeast winds so i thought well i'll come back when the groupers run you know how can you uh completely go over a lifetime in an hour.